0: A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Hello again, and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I'm your host, Kim. I'm bringing you a case today that was suggested by a listener named Julie, who, if I'm correct, currently resides in Australia, but she lived in Banff for 10 years and both her kids were born here in Canada. And the events of this case happened during her time here, so it's of particular interest for her. It's also one of the only murders that has ever happened in Banff, of course, if you don't count the days of gunslinging gold miners. Um, As soon as I said Banff, a few of you Albertans probably know the case. This is the murder of Lucy Termel. So as you've likely guessed, today we are visiting Banff, Alberta. And if you have never been, let me tell you a little bit about our little gem nestled in the majestic Rocky Mountains. Banff is probably one of our biggest attractions for tourists, at least here in Alberta. It's a resort town. It offers skiing, skidooing, snowshoeing. Um, they have natural hot springs there. All, just basically all kinds of winter adventure sports. And in the summer, you can hike, uh, bike, quad, horseback riding. It was the first town actually built within a national park. And it gets visitors from all over the globe. And it's actually set at the base of a series of mountains, so it's exceptionally scenic. And lining the main street of Banff is a plethora of souvenir shops, pubs, restaurants, and it can be a bit of a party town at night. Um, Banff is also, of course, home to the Banff Springs Hotel, which is a most luxurious and very grand old hotel that is reportedly haunted and some say the inspiration behind the Stanley Hotel of the Shining fame. I heard on the news recently that currently they are having staffing issues there because of the pandemic, because they actually rely on young workers from countries, um, particularly like Australia, who come there to work and to, of course, enjoy the grand outdoors for the summer or for the winter. And the actual number of people that live year-round and actually call Banff their home is under 10,000 people. And in 1890, when these events took place, I believe it was only a population of about 3,500. I'm not particularly sure of the draw of Australians to Canada. I mean, perhaps there's a thrill of trading in the deadly snakes and spiders for grizzly bears and cougars. I myself don't go to Banff very often because I actually don't ski, and it can get pretty peoply, very crowded with tourists in the summer. But when I do go, I always make sure to get what's called a bear claw from the Fudgery Bakery, which is basically a giant donut. Um, obviously, in the, as the name would say in the shape of a bear, <clears throat> bear's claw, and you can get all kinds of sweet toppings on top of it. It's about about a million calories, but I think worth every added fat cell that it adds. Um, So it's definitely, if you do go there, make sure to visit the Fudgery. Um, And if you are ever wondering, my cover artwork for my podcast is a photo that I took from Banff of an old abandoned coal mine that my daughter Cecilia and I hiked up to about six years ago. It's really cool and kind of spooky up there, and I thought it would make a really good cover photo. There's also a POW camp there. It was used um, in World War One and World War II to house prisoners of war. That one's actually at the base of Castle Mountain, if you're interested. And the coal mine is in a place called Bankhead, which is just outside of Banff. And if you you do have to kind of hike up there a little bit to get to it, but it's definitely worth the trip if you like kind of spooky and creepy stuff like that. I also, I would suggest if you do go to splurge for a helicopter tour of the area, it's really quite an amazing view and and really worth the money. Uh, It is quite expensive. Um, At the time that I went, which was uh, quite a number of years ago, I think it was almost $300 a person and you're only in the air for about 20 minutes, but it, it's just definitely worth it. You can take pictures from up there and it's just. It's just really amazing, so I would suggest you do that. But I digress. This isn't about me, so I'm going to quit my yibber-yabbering and get to the case. In 1987, Lucy Termel was 21 years old. She was living in Levi, Quebec, with her parents, Jean, who was a doctor, and her mom, Denise. And she had two brothers. Now, I know that one brother was named Louis, but I'm not sure of the other brother's name. And at that time, she decided to, she was going to pack up and she's going to head out to the mountains to start a new life in Banff. Um, pictures of Lucy depict a very lively and pretty fresh-faced woman with these brown curls that were cut into like a layered shag that was very popular in the late 80s, and once in Banff, she quickly found work doing a variety of hospitality jobs. So she worked for a time at a place called the Caboose, and then at the Grizzly House, and then as a part-time cab driver with a company called Taxi Taxi. And so by the night of May 17th, 1990, things were going really great for Lucy. She was loving the town, the people, the outdoorsy lifestyle, and she had also met the man of her dreams, a man named Jeff who worked as a bartender at the Grizzly house who was from Alberta. Um, she had met the him when she had worked there as a waitress. So they were busy planning their wedding. And so they were both working as many hours as they possibly could to pay for a wedding. That particular evening started very uneventful. She logged in at around 8 PM and spent most of her night along the downtown, the downtown strip picking up, passengers from the pubs and restaurants and then dropping them off either at their hotel or the next stop on their night clubbing tours. And she was chatting on the radio with her co-worker named Larry Landreau. Uh, she mentioned that she was tired and looking forward to getting off and going home for the night. So by near the end of the night, she'd only taken in about $130. And so she stopped by the Grizzly house to talk briefly with Jeff uh, she told him how much she had made and that she was hoping to get another couple of fares before she ended her shift. So she headed to a nightclub called The Works, which is attached to the Banff Springs Hotel on Spray Avenue. Um, and there is sort of like they have at the airports where cabs will line up outside the doors and then take their turns picking up passengers as they stumble out of the pub. And at one forty a.m., two women... And a man came out of the doors of the pub and Larry watched as they got in Lucy's cab and he overheard their requested destination as Cougar Street. And then they pulled away. He then moved into the next in line, taking the spot that Lucy had parked in. About 12 minutes later, their boss, Bruce, radioed Larry to tell him that he hadn't heard from Lucy to end her shift. And Larry thought that that was odd because she, of course she had mentioned that she was tired and was going to be ending her night soon. She had said that she was just going to probably do that one last fair. He, he tried calling her on the radio and she didn't answer, which was also unusual for her. Um, so we figured maybe she decided to head home right after and, and kind of forgot to, to log out with Bruce But normally she would have called that in. So about 20 minutes after trying to reach her, he decided to drive around a bit and look for her. So he drove past her last destination. Um, There was no Lucy. It was just an ongoing party that had been happening at that house. And then he drove past her house and didn't see her cab parked out front. Then about a block from her house, he spotted her cab driving towards him only Lucy wasn't behind the wheel and a man was driving. So he kind of gave Chase assuming that her cab had been stolen. Um, But he also had a very bad feeling because Lucy probably should have if She could have called in or radioed to say that her cab was stolen. So he trailed the cab for about two miles. Now, one report says that it was a high speed chase and another said that he actually stayed back a bit so as not to tip the driver off. Either way, they wound up on a dead end street called Mountain Avenue and the mysterious driver hopped out and ran into the woods, disappearing from sight before Larry could catch up to him but he did get a little bit of a description of him. He was under 25 years old with dark hair and a thin build. At about that same time, local officer Nigel Patterson responded to a report of a body lying in the middle of the road on Squirrel Street. And yes, all the streets in Banff have names either after wooded creatures or the scenic area around them. Squirrel Street is just a couple of blocks from Mountain Avenue where Larry had seen this mysterious man ditch Lucy's cap. Lucy's body was lying in the middle of the street and right across from the elementary school. Unfortunately, Banff doesn't have a medical examiner's office, so while reinforcements from the RCMP were being dispatched, her body had to stay where it was. And by the time Detective Doug Morrison of the Calgary RCMP detachment arrived, school children had arrived for their school day and had been shuffled quickly inside and kept away from the windows. Nigel had no choice but to cover her up with a blanket, which of course risks destroying some evidence, but at least prevented the children from being scarred. Lucy, it turned out, had been stabbed seventeen times in the neck and face with a number of defensive wounds. There was no evidence of sexual assault and now i've I've seen the autopsy photos and it was an extremely violent crime. The yellow jacket, which was a signature of taxi taxi employees, was missing, as was her wallet and the hundred and thirty dollars in cash that she had made that night. They found blood. Um, sort of spattered on the dashboard and the steering wheel of of her cab, but based on the patterns that it made, it didn't look to be like it was from Lucy's injuries and was likely that of the suspect who had been injured while stabbing Lucy. So they think that she had been attacked outside of the cab and that the perpetrator had then jumped in and then bled on the driver's side of the vehicle while he was fleeing the scene. What they didn't know is if this was someone that had flagged her down on the road or if it was someone that was actually in her cab as a fare. So DNA was relatively new technology in 1990, but they decided to run it on the blood. This definitely appeared to be a rage killing, and they were going to spare no expense in tracking down who had killed Lucy Termel. So step one was, of course, to try and track down her last fare of the evening. They talked to all of the employees at the works, and they said that they had, there had been a party that night on Cougar Street. So they went to that house. Yes, there was a party. No, they don't recall anything or anyone out of the ordinary or the passengers that were described as being the last passengers of Lucy's. And it's a very transient town so wh- whoever they were had likely returned to where they had originally been visiting from by that time the following day after her body had been discovered a local resident discovered a discarded bloody knife laying on his driveway the knife was fairly unique and had blood on it that was later confirmed to be lucy's Several witnesses at the works said that there had been a guy threatening people with a knife that night that Lucy was killed. He had been kicked out of the bar, a basically homeless man named Luc Benoit. He was French-Canadian like Lucy and seemed like a pretty good suspect, so they brought him in. He was shaken off a hangover, and when they asked what happened to his knife, he said he lost it. He also said that he might have killed her. He didn't remember that night. But he didn't match the physical description, and his DNA didn't match the samples from inside Lucy's cab. Hi, this is Ross, the host of Smells Like Humans, a show about interesting and quirky human behavior. We bring humor, empathy, and warmth to topics such as relationships, dating, work, self-compassion, weddings, phobias, aging parents, travel mishaps, death, and many more. Ever wonder what happens at a cuddle party? We talk about it. Free-range kids in restaurants? We've got some thoughts. Bedtime stories for adults? We're on it. Light, fun, unscripted conversation and personal stories. Please join us by clicking the link in the show notes. So at this point, Doug Morrison and Nigel Patterson are facing a couple of challenges in their investigation. They were able to get the names of all the guests of the Banff Springs Hotel and from pretty much every other place that they could think of, and they tried to narrow down the list to those that had criminal records. Well, that turned out to be a whopping 70% of them. The national average of a population to have a criminal record? That's 10%. Now, I couldn't find any specific research on this in particular, but I think the reason is because it's hard to get a job when you have a criminal record. So you're stuck looking for minimum wage jobs, busboys, housekeepers, etc. And Banff is a huge tourist town, but not a lot of permanent residents. So I think a lot of places, they take those people that they can get, and they just don't concern themselves so much for things that maybe people have already been punished for. Um, I think that it's a similar stat you would see in any small town that attracts a lot of tourists. Secondly, you can't get a warrant to take a blood sample if the person doesn't consent. So they can't just go around asking for blood samples from random people because obviously only those that are innocent are actually going to say, yeah, no problem. Uh, Most of the people had gone back to their homes of origin anyways. Taxi Taxi offered up a reward of $5,000 and the RCMP sent letters to everyone that was there at the time, like internationally. So like 2,200 letters were sent out. They did interview a total of about 5,000 people over the course of two years, including 600 local workers, and managed to get about 200 blood samples, but no luck in matching or getting any further leads. So when the case went cold two years later, it was actually featured on Unsolved Mysteries, and that brought in a few more tips, but still no resolution for Lucy, Jeff, or her family. Then... On December 6, 1991, a woman finally came forward who said that she was pretty sure she knew that she where she had seen that knife before. and She revealed that her then 18-year-old roommate, who was working as a housekeeper at the Bamp Springs Hotel, named Ryan Jason Love, had bragged about the knife, how it was unique, and his grandfather had given it to him. Ryan Love was a partier that liked his alcohol and drugs but he hadn't been seen as particularly violent. Just a young brat that was pissing away and snorting up his parents' money that he was supposed to be using for school. Nigel and Doug tracked him down to Duncan, B.C. at his parents' home. Now, he was pretty calm when he was questioned. He said that, yes, the knife was his, but that someone must have stolen it, um, and that he was at a family reunion at the time of the murder because he came home to Duncan for that particular reason and uh, that he was flying home at the time. But when he would, when asked if he would give a blood sample, no way Jose. Now, Nigel and Doug get that kind of hinky feeling about him, but they can't get the blood sample. So they talked to one of their local undercover guys and it turns out that the undercover cop actually knew Ryan He was running with one of those low-life crowds that they were focusing in on. Just a small-time group of petty crooks, mostly. So, with the help of this undercover cop, they get him to ask Ryan to help out with a robbery of a fishing boat that they're working on. He invites him to his hotel to discuss this task that he's going to do. And now, this is pretty genius, actually, what they do. They know that he's probably not going to confess, but what they really want is that DNA sample. So what do they do? They get a couple of female undercover cops to pose as sex workers brought to the hotel by the undercover, the undercover man. And while in the room, the undercover cop plucks some hair from Ryan under this ruse of, I don't know, they were joking around about something. But they figure that's probably not going to stick in court. So what they're actually really hoping for is that when the undercover cop leaves and says, hey, hang out here for a little bit, I'll be back, and these sexy girls leave the room, he will, you know, relieve his pent-up frustration into a Kleenex or something, so they can come back later and get it. Only he didn't do that. Darn. But what he did do when he first walked into the room earlier was blow his nose and toss the Kleenex. Voila! Instant DNA sample. No consent required. And the DNA, of course, matched the samples from the cab. Now, of course, he claimed he was innocent and a smirky and douchey looking Ryan was brought in and arrested and charged with Lucy's murder. Doug finally did manage to track down the two female passengers of Lucy's from the night of her murder, and wouldn't you know, they got into the cab and a drunken Ryan just piled in with them saying he was going to the same party, like a total moochie waffle. He finally admitted to Doug Morrison that he had been partying hard that night and needed cash to get home to the family reunion, but the money that his parents had sent him he had spent on drugs, and in his words, his parents were going to be so pissed if he missed his flight. So he hailed down Lucy and killed her for a $130 and was going to use the stolen cab to get himself to the airport so he didn't miss the flight that his parents had booked for him. Needless to say... Ryan was found guilty of second-degree murder and si- sentenced to life with no parole for 20 years. He was 18 when he killed Lucy, 22 when he was sentenced, and after serving six years, he was moved to Victoria's Williams Head Institution, which, of course, is a minimum security with Ocean View Cottages, as discussed in Ian Gordon's case, the Bonaventure Axe Murders. In the year 2000, he said to the National Post, quote, I'm supposed to be punished here, and I think a lot of people might be upset because I'm having the time of my life. He, of course, regretted those words later, said it was taken out of context, and he planned to apologize to her family, which, of course, never happened. Louis Turmel, her brother, said, quote, I wouldn't say we don't care, but we're not waiting for it. How do you apologize for killing someone 20 years later? He didn't show any remorse. It's one of the reasons the judge was hard on him. Even if you say, I'm sorry, it doesn't return anybody, end quote. In 2011, he was granted day parole, Uh, And then he was given a warning when he was caught drinking at a strip club two months later. He was granted full parole in 2012 at the tender age of 40. uh, And his conditions to stay out of prison is to abstain from drugs and alcohol and to have no contact with Lucy's family and, of course, to go to counseling. The parole board wrote at the time, quote, a lifestyle including the abuse of both alcohol and illegal drugs has been identified as a factor that contributed to your offense. Maintaining your sobriety is a key risk management strategy. You have been abstinent since 2005, as confirmed by your analysis testing. You are employed and have a strong pro social network pro-social support network in the community. You are reported to be aware of your risk factors and to have developed a good relapse prevention plan, which you use in high-risk situations. You remain motivated to succeed in the community. At the time of incarceration, the risk factors identified as contributing to this violent criminal offense included substance abuse, personal and emotional issues, and attitude. The current correctional plan no longer lists any risk factors as significant. The rage indicated by trauma to the body of the victim and the efforts you made to conceal your involvement may suggest deeper rooted issues that defy explanation. In a psych assessment, it was written, quote, true character and personality will Never be known because there is nothing in your community or prison history that can explain the brutality and prolonged nature of the offense. Ryan, for his per- part, told the parole board in 2012 that, quote, prison hasn't been easy. It's been a long 19 years, but any hardships I've had have been nothing compared to my family's and the Termel family. The entire town of Banff was hurt. I won't hurt again, end quote. About his parole being granted, Louis Turmel, Lucy's brother, said, quote, there are some rules we accept in our society. He got caught. He did the time. The correctional services worked on him to make him a better person. If the board thinks he doesn't pose problems to society, then we're not going to be against it. Happy or unhappy, it doesn't really impact us. You have to move on to do something else or else you live in the past Uh, it's life you move on now sherry zickfust who you might remember from the kimmy thompson case said in an article that she wrote called remorse and reform that all his words smacked of manipulation on love's part she wrote that he claims to have grown up Uh, a lot but there was still no apology and he admitted to being institutionalized from a social aspect at the time of lucy's murder he, he was a partier and had dropped out of school was running with a shady crowd and then immediately to an institution for 20 years so it's unlikely he is actually fit for proper society but he was paroled and no one knows where he is now the law was changed to allow police to get warrants to collect DNA without consent after Lucy's case. That new law was first used in 1995 to convict Murray Lyons, who raped and killed an eight-year-old in New Brunswick. And according to CBC's The Detectives, taxi drivers are killed on the job twice as often as police officers, more than any other occupation. In fact, according to Car even recent stats from 2022 say that cab drivers are 30 times more likely to be murdered more than any other occupation. Now, I think they're not considering sex work as an occupation in that stat, but still very frightening. That same website cites that Uber drivers fare better as far as being victims of violent crime, probably because they have the luxury of avoiding certain neighborhoods and not working at night. But even with the app that allows you to select the gender of your driver and wait somewhere safe for it, as a passenger you don't have the same level of security of background checks on drivers. And that was the senseless and vicious murder of 23-year-old Lucy Termel. Thank you so much to Julie for the suggestion. I would love to come and visit your beautiful country again someday, but, you know, snakes. I am so terrified of any snakes, even the harmless ones. Uh, And that definitely keeps me from enjoying places like Banff and, of course, Australia to the fullest. I will be back next week from the safety of snakes from my home with another case thank you so much for listening